0: Good morning, everyone. All right. Well, we're right in the middle of our youth camp. I don't know how many of you know, but we've been having about 20 kids living here at the center for uh, 24 hours a day, except for the weekends, for the last two weeks. So if you see any uh, people walking around with kind of a stunned <laughs> look of <laughs> of exhaustion, that might be the reason why. <laughs> It's been a real treat, actually. It's really quite a life that's given to this place with that chaotic, crazy, open investigation into being alive that's that's in a kid, you know, the, and it seems like the more you let them run, the more they run, you know. It's like on Friday, we went downtown to D.C., and we did a, uh, well, at least my group, did a mall walk, so we walked all the way from the Washington Memorial up to the Lincoln Memorial and around and back and it's hot outside, you know, and we were walking a pretty good clip to cover that distance in in our two and a half hours. So we got up there. We were riding the subway back, you know. The, all of the counselors are, you know, doing their best to sit upright in the chairs on the on the train. And what are the kids doing? The kids are hanging from the holding bars, having a pull up contest <laughs> to see who can do the most pull ups. And then we get back here. We we put dinner on, and then it's you know it's almost nine o'clock at night. And they decide that, that that tag, they're going to play a game of freeze tag in the basement. So we've got 20 kids, you know, chasing each other all around the, the the chairs down there and running around the poles. And all the adults in the room sitting at the table with their forks kind of halfway to the mouth like, is it possible? <laughs> where, Where is that infinite fountain that they found of energy? Anyway, it's been a great time. And so, uh, you know, we have... Uh, I was going to invite anybody to stop by, but that might not be a good idea. But if you'd like to bring uh, some food, or if you want to bring a snack or something, or help with a class, uh, talk to one of the swamis. And uh, if we don't have room this year, certainly next year, we'll be taking up uh, a a, a good list for helpers for next year. Now this morning, um, you know, more than ever, putting this lecture together... (laughs) More than ever I wish I could sit in, in, in the chair down there and, and give this lecture because uh, it's a challenging subject. And you know, as like any time we approach the scriptures, it's like we have to hold ourselves up, you know, and, and compare ourselves to what's being said and and analyze our own minds and our own lives. And uh, I always have to retreat to that understanding, you know, that I'm 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 a cheerleader. <laughs> That really, I see that as my role in being a Swami. Some Swamis are, you know, leaders and gurus, and they're up there, uh, you know, with their own experiences telling you what it is and how it is. Uh, I'm, I'm, you know, running along at the back of the line, kind of just cheering, cheering the folks that are hoping to make it before the doors close. Um, and so it's with that spirit that I put these things before you this morning, kind of as a, as a co-student with you and a fellow seeker. And uh, hopefully, you know, we can, we can move ourselves closer to that truth and closer to that understanding of our nature inside. I'd like to start, of course, with a poem by Hafiz. He was a Sufi poet, I think from the 1500s to the 1500s or the 1200s. I get them mixed up with Rumi. But anyway, this poem's called Not With Wings. Hear, soar, not with wings. But with your moving hands and feet and sweating brows, standing by your beloved side, reaching out to comfort this world, with your cup of solace drawn from your vast reservoir of truth. Here, soar, not with your eyes and senses that turn their backs on the earth's sweet stumbling dance which needs you. No, here love. Oh, here, love with your mouth tender and open upon your lover, and with your heart on duty to the souls of rivers, children, forest animals, all the shy feathered ones and laughing, jumping, shining fish. Oh, hear, pilgrim, love, on this holy battleground of life, where there are bleeding men who are calling for a sacred drink, a gentle word or a touch from man or God. Hafiz, Why just serve and play with angels? They are already content. Brew your knowledge well for men with aching minds and guts, and for those wayfarers who have gained their rare courageous thirsts that can never be relinquished until union. Hafiz, leave your recipes in golden drums and tie those barrels to the backs of camels who will keep circumambulating this world giving nourishment to all the tender, wondrous spheres. Oh, here, love. Oh, love, right here. Find your happiness, dear wayfarer, with your beautiful lips and body so sweetly opened, yielding their vital gifts upon this magnificent earth. It's always a struggle to keep a focus on, uh, on our priorities, not just in life, not just in spiritual life, not just in religion, not just in practice, but in everything that we undertake. And uh, love is is underlying all of that, underlying all of that. I always start, as you know, by reminding us of the three most important things, uh, according to some of the sages. The first one from our beloved Thakur, from Ramakrishna, when he was asked what the most important thing in this world is, he said it is it is your earnestness and your sincerity in your in the way that you live, to be what you really are, to be to do away with hypocrisy, to do away with pride and ego, and to live earnestly and freely from the nature that is within you, from that, that place of love, that place that place of being, that you're all in alignment, that what you say, what you do and what you think are one and the same. He said that's the most important thing, that if you do that, God will take care of the rest. If you're going down the wrong path or your practice is wrong or your understanding is incorrect, if you're earnest and you're sincere in that pursuit, God will take responsibility himself or herself for your path and for getting you where you need to go. The second one is from our beloved Jesus, (laughs) who when asked what the most important commandment in the whole world was, he said it is to love God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like it, he says, to love your neighbor as you love yourself. So that is the, that that those two commandments really can fall into one, since we see God in each other and in the world around us. To have that love, and that love mixed with that sincerity and earnestness, makes a beautiful person. So those two are our most important things. And then the third one will keep us angled in the right direction. And that was, again, from Ramakrishna when he was sitting on the banks of the Ganga and throwing out the pairs of opposites in this world. You know, Because he, he, he teaches that this world's kind of a bouncing back and forth between the opposites, between love and hate, good and bad, right and wrong, rich, poor, whatever. Everything has its duality in this world. And he was sitting there in the Ganga trying to find in his practice an equanimity of being where he could be free from that suffering. And so he was throwing things out throwing the pairs of opposites out and we came to truth he wanted to say ma here take your truth and take your untruth give me only pure love for you as he had done with all of the others but when he when he went to throw the you know truth out when he went to kind of go through the metaphoric action there his mother held his hand she wouldn't let him throw truth away the truth is fundamental the truth is fundamental to our path and what does that mean Truth really again, mixed with your love and your sincerity and, and, and your earnestness, it again refers to an alignment. a person a person who's living in truth, means that their very nature, which we know from the scriptures, both the, many of the world's scriptures, actually, not just, not just the Hindu scriptures, that our nature is love, that we're created in the image of God, that what we are is, is love and its manifestation, and to live truthfully is to have everything that we do, everything that we say, and everything that we think come from that place, from that understanding of a universal love, of seeing ourselves and others, seeing that God which is present within us, which is beating our heart and causing us to breathe, that we recognize that in the eyes of everyone and everything around us, and to live accordingly. That's truth. That's to understand truth. In this place, if you're here for the first time this morning, that's the goal of this place, that's the ideal of this place. Here, life is religion and the way that you live is your practice. There's no delineations, there's no modular aspect that from this time to this time is your practice and from this time to this time is your secular period and this time to this time is your work and your job. No, it's all your practice. All of it is your spiritual life. This life is spiritual by nature because you are spiritual by nature. You know, this body grows old and it dies. All of us are witnessing that, some in fun ways and some in rather challenging ways, but we're all learning that. But us, that heart, that love, which is here looking out through these eyes and listening through these ears and learning to use this body and training itself how to take, take advantage of all of its capabilities, that self which is within, it's the same self in each of us, That self is is here to be expressed purely and freely, and for you to support each other in that endeavor, for you to use each other as a petri dish, as it were, a laboratory for learning how to love, for learning how to give, and learning how to care. So this place has an ideal that's the highest ideal that each of us can think of, and that ideal has different names for different people from different religions and different ideas. But if you open your mind and stretch your mind, you can see your ideal here, regardless of the face on this statue or the face in the picture. There's one ideal for all of us by many names. And you can take that ideal and name it what you like. And you can call it what you like. Only strive to reach it. Strive to be it. So this place exists for that. Uh, I'm saying all of this because it came to mind while I was sitting there. And so I, I try, on whenever I get up and lecture, to try and, and be obedient to what I feel like gets dumped into my head. This notion of the purpose of this place, because uh, you know, sometimes we get confused about what this place is or what it's about, and it's not the same to everybody, obviously. So everybody's right in that regard. But in general, this place is here to provide you help in any way that you define needing help, and for you to build this place to be a support to your spiritual life, however you see that, where you are, and to go forward. That a Christian might be a better Christian, a Hindu might be a better Hindu, that a Muslim might be a better Muslim. And that all of us will look at love as our common ideal and talk about those commonalities. you know. And when we run out of commonalities, then we can talk about the differences. But the ideal of love is what this place is. So feel free and make this place your own. This place doesn't have a self-defined way of doing things. If you need something, ask for it. If you want something, ask for it. If a class would be helpful, ask for it. You know, if a study would be helpful, ask for it. Those things. Express yourself and make this place your own. Use it. The most valuable thing that you can bring here is your spiritual practice. To come and to meditate in the shrine, to come and have your prayers here, to come and do your studies in the bookshop slash library out there. So to leave your holy practice, your holy vibrations, as it were, if you want to talk in good California beach lingo, leave your vibrations, put a good vibe in here for everybody to share. It does make a difference. It's investment in a place that makes it special. So invest your heart here and make this place special. So with that in mind, let's jump into this idea of austerity. (laughs) Austerity, I'll tell you up front, I'm not good at it. <laughs> I've, uh, I, I, I haven't quite come to that place of equanimity. I, I prefer comfort quite often, uh, you know, and as, as much as monasticism has, has worked to train that out of me, I've done my best to, to rise to that occasion, but I'm not the ideal one for giving a lecture on austerity. <laughs> So that's why I, want, I prefer to be sitting in a chair down there this morning as we talk about these things. I find it very challenging and very difficult and, uh, and quite piercing, I have, to, I have to admit. Spiritual life is a challenge. It's difficult. And if it isn't, you're not doing it right, probably. <laughs> or, or you've already attained, attained your goal, which would be quite wonderful either way. So why? would we want to practice austerity? Why would we do, uh, you know, these, these uncomfortable things or these things that, that uh, you know, are, go out of our way to make life difficult for ourselves? In a sense, we'll talk more about a definition earlier on. But when I think of austerity without having read these scriptures, that's what I thought about, you know, making things difficult that don't need to be difficult as a sense of practice. You know, wearing your hair shirt, or you know, flogging yourself at certain times of the years, or not eating certain foods for certain times, and whatnot. So here's why we're going to do it. We're going to jump into a scene with Ramakrishna and some devotees sitting around uh, in his room at the temple at Dakshineshwar on the banks of the river in India, and a devotee asks him, "Why don't we feel dispassion toward worldly objects?" So, you know, and another way of asking is, "Why do we love?" Why do we love things in the world? Why do we love all these objects? Why are we always running after, you know, the next best thing? You know, the next great phone, or the next big stereo, or the next new car, or the next relationship, whatever it is. Why? Why don't we feel dispassion toward them? Why can't we have an equanimous feeling and be content where we are? And the master says, because of maya, through maya, one feels the real to be the unreal, and the unreal to be the real. The real means that which is eternal, the supreme brahman. And the unreal means that which is non-eternal, that is to say the world. So he's saying because of Maya, Maya the definition of Maya really is this. <laughs> if we saw this property properly without our, our misunderstandings about who we are, we would see God and God alone. You know, we run around trying to see God and asking people, have you seen God? And, uh, you know, the sages are the first to say, you've never seen anything but God. And everything else that you've named it and everything else that you've called it and everything else that you've collected and stored is maya, a misunderstanding. And he's saying it's because of that misunderstanding that the real seems unreal, meaning that which is not changing. That which is the self that looks out through your eyes and listens to your, to your ears. That self which is ever eternal, ever present, and ever pure. That thing seems unreal because it's still and it's, it's equanimous. It's undisturbed. And it's right up against the senses which are exciting and flickering and colorful and smell great and taste wonderful and feel terrific and inspire beautiful things. And so we get caught up in those senses, and we're pulled out into the world of the limited, and that seems real. This body seems real. This building seems real. The the sun seems real. All of these things are what we call reality, and this quiet, blissful self loses all of that attention inside, and you get caught up. You get caught up in all of those things outside. That's Maya, and so the devotee is asking, why can't we feel any dispassion? Why can't we find equanimity in there? He says, his his follow-up question to that is, you know, we read the scriptures, we read the scriptures, but why can't we assimilate them? Why are we always talking about love and not becoming lovers? Why are we always talking about service and not becoming servants? Why are we, you know, why at our our annual get-together retreats are the same questions raised every year? You know, why is this? What's going on? The master says, what will one accomplish by mere reading? One needs spiritual practice, austerity. Call on God. What is the use of merely repeating the word Siddhi? One must eat a little of it. I think Siddhi, it's something to do with marijuana, right? <laughs> so, anyway, take that how you want. But uh, <laughs> So he says that spiritual practice is a matter of austerity. So that's the importance of austerity. If you're not moving forward in your spiritual life, it's because of a lack of austerity there, a lack of specialized practice. We're going to get in, we're going to get into a little bit here uh, more about what it is next. But he goes on to say the hand bleeds when it touches a thorny plant. And suppose you bring such a plant and repeat sitting near it. There, burn plant, burn. Will that burn the plant? This world is like that thorny plant. This world is what's causing your suffering, causing your pain. It's like that thorny plant, light the fire of knowledge, and with it set that plant ablaze, only then will it be burnt up. So take in this knowledge of what your nature is, your true self, realize that there is this quiet, equanimous, ever-content, ever-pure self that is behind your senses, behind your mind, and only looking through mind, looking through your senses, at that which is God, but misunderstanding it because it un- misunderstands its own nature. It thinks it's a body, so it sees bodies. You know, it thinks that it's an animal, so it sees animals. It thinks that it's needy, so it sees lack and feels hunger. It thinks that it's, that it's, that it's temporary, that it dies, and so it feels fear, and it feels separateness. And from that lust and greed that come through the senses, we create this whole world. Everything is based on those two values. You know, enjoyment so he's saying you have to find this knowledge of your nature, of who you are, and then only will this discomfort and this misunderstanding of the world burn up and go away. One must labor a little at this stage of sadhana, of spiritual practice. Then the path becomes easy. Steer the boat around the curves of the river and then let it go with the favorable wind. So there's some effort involved. Effort involved. You know, I grew up going to church on Sundays and... Uh, I always had a really cool Bible. <laughs> it's one of the things that you got on all of your special occasions. You got a new Bible, a new cool Bible. And I knew growing up that it always kind of bothered me, even as a kid, that basically that Bible stayed in the back uh, pocket of the chair in front of me in the, in the, in the car, <laughs> on the back side of the driver's side. And my Bible was there, my mother's Bible was there, my dad's Bible was there, my brothers' Bibles were there. (laughs) Like they were all in the car. They just stayed in the car and we only took them out on Sundays. And that kind of always bothered me, you know, which may have been part of why my path went a different direction. But it should bother us if our spiritual life is an afterthought, if our spiritual life is something that only occurs to us every now and then. You know, if it's not a guiding principle in the way that you're acting in the office, if it's not the guiding principle for the way you're, you're acting on public transport when you're sitting there next to folks and when you walk by people in need and when you're watching the news, if you're not, you know, discriminating with your mind the accuracy of what you're being told and what you're being fed, you know, if you're not running all these things through that filter of, of the knowledge of what is, what is real, what is true, that I am love incarnate, that I feel good when I do nice things because it is my nature, you know, that it feels bad when I do selfish things or, or do things from the perspective of being a body, being a limit or being a restriction. When you do things from that place, you hurt because it's not according to your nature. It's not a big mystery, but pay attention to that. He says, the darkness of the mind is destroyed only when a man stands a little apart from lust and greed. And thus, standing apart practices a little austerity and a little spiritual discipline. Then only does the cloud of this ego and ignorance vanish then only does he attain the knowledge of God. This lust and greed is the only cloud that hides this sun of knowledge. This lust and greed belongs to the body. You know, it belongs to, to, to the senses. In uh, Again, one of my favorite, uh, not favorite, but certainly one of my regular references is the, the Garden of Eden, which exists within you. That place where you can walk freely in the in in the light, in the cool of the eve, with your God, with your beloved. But when Eve looks at that that fruit of the knowledge of good and evil, the first thing she says is that it, it looked pleasing to the senses, it looked good to eat, and it looked like it would bring her knowledge and understanding. And so she then reached out and ate that fruit. She went out through the senses, identified herself through the senses, identified her source of truth as being through the senses. And at that point, she became a body. She became a set of limitations and restrictions. She became eternally hungry at that point and took and ate of that fruit. That made her separate from God. She got an ego, an ego that was separate from that divinity, that knowledge of self as love, as purity, as freedom, as eternal. She lost that and became a body at that moment. And then the curse which came to her, we like, you know, in, in the Christian world, is God curses her. He, he did this third party does something to her. But in reality, what she did had its own effect. Just like you put your hand on a stove, you burn. It's not that God burns your hand because you put it on the stove, it's because if you put your hand on the stove, it burns. If you live a life through the senses, you're kicked out of your inner peace. You can't feel and, and experience that inner, that inner self. That, that, that place of equanimity that's ever content, that's ever free, that's ever pure, has never been born and will never die. If you live a life based on what you see and what you hear and what you think and what you feel, it's a life of suffering because you will never have enough. You're an, you're an infinite being, and for that infinite being, only infinite things are satisfying. And in this world of limitations and restrictions, there is nothing but you that is infinite. So we have to turn within. We have to let go of this idea of bodies and the idea of lust and the idea of greed, these things that make us, val- you know, give a value, make us think- make these the, those two things that give value to every one of us around. Because of lust, we become men. We become women. You know, we become identified with a sexuality of any kind. Because of lust, people around us become good looking and ugly, become rich and become poor become become successful or unsuccessful, become fat and skinny. All of those valuations because of lust, we begin to judge one another in good shape, in bad shape. Oh she's old and ugly. He's old and ugly. You know, oh she's young and beautiful. Contrarily, he's young, maybe beautiful, who knows? <laughs> so this darkness of the mind that sees things through that through that notion of lust and greed, you know, how important are your friends? Are they all within your, within your income strata, you know? We have, we have our own inbuilt caste system in this great land of ours, and it's based on money. You can only go in that restaurant if you can afford that restaurant. You can only shop in that store if you can afford that store. If you can't live in that house, then you live on the street because you can't afford okay. that house, you know. And so we have a built-in caste system because we believe in the value of greed, the value of money. And we judge the world accordingly. As long as you live inside this house of Maya, as long as you live inside your senses, as long as there exists this cloud of Maya, you do not see the effect of the sun of knowledge. I'm talking about that talking about that, that cloud layer, you know, in <laughs> San Francisco, where I lived for many, many, many years. That cloud layer settles, that marine layer, and you freeze to death. And then you just get on the subway and go to the other side of the peninsula, and it's like 80 degrees outside, everybody's running around, it's beautiful. You kind of come back home to my... The closer you live to the beach in San Francisco, ironically, the cheaper your rent is <laughs> because of that, because you, you live in that foggy, windy cold for half the year every year. So to get away from that cloud layer, you have to get away from this idea of lust and greed. You have to understand your nature is not physical. Your nature is spiritual that you are ever free and ever pure. Stand aside from it just a little bit, he says, and do your practices then, and only then this ego. And what is ego? Ego is what happens when that infinite self, which is ever pure, ever free, ever content, presses up against that, the world of the senses, looks out through them, and begins to believe itself to be them. That's ego. That's when, you're, that's when you become small. That's when you become afraid because you can die, and because you don't know the nature of the other. You don't know what you can trust and what you can't trust. And this world, if you poke too far in any direction, it doesn't make any sense. Any toddler can teach you that by the fifth why. Why? Why? You know, Louis C.K. does a great comedy sketch on that, you know, <laughs> that the little kid just always wants to know why. And you can only answer it about three times in a row before you don't know. You're like, I don't, I don't know, because, <laughs> you know. And that's where the humor lies, you know. And so we stop asking, right? After a while, even a kid understands. Oh, my dad's good for about three whys, and after that, he doesn't know. So we kind of have to ignore that, because otherwise we have to admit we live in a world that we don't understand at all. So we have to create assumptions, and these assumptions become our cage. These assumptions become our, our, our reality, temporary as it may be. And we get stuck in that. So only when you step aside, step into that, you kind of have to back into that sense of self, to your real nature, because it doesn't have any limits. It doesn't, it, it's, it's everything and nothing at the same time. You know, It's not flashy and exciting. It's still and pure and free. It doesn't make any noises. It won't catch your attention. The senses are doing that. And by closing out the senses and by stepping back, eventually you back into the arms of the mother, as it were. You become one with the divine. It's not something that you have to run and chase. It's not something that you have to build or attain. It's something you realize because it's something that you are already. But you have to back into it, back in, by walking away from these other things. So we know that this darkness, this maya, this misunderstanding can only be undone by austerity. So let's jump into what it means. What is this austerity? from Vedanta.org, which is put together by our mothership, the Hollywood Center in in, uh, L.A. It says, Austerity in Vedanta means disciplining the body and mind in order to put them at our disposal for the realization of God. So it means disciplining your body and mind, putting the limits on them so that you can step back from them, understand that they are not you, that you're not defined by them, that you're every free at any moment to change your notions about them or to accept or reject notions about them, and that you can then use them, use this body and mind, for your realization of your nature, for an investigation into what this world is, to poke at this world and ask questions about your experience here and take in what you learn, because if you are aware and if you use your body and mind in that way, you will find the truth of your nature you won't get caught in, in, in this wonderful, playful illusion that we've put together for ourselves. The real meaning of tapas, or austerity, is single-pointedness of the mind and senses. Austerity is an internal way of living, maintaining the right relationship with the world of objects and beings. It is a means to conserve our energy rather than wasting our energy in unproductive ways. Getting up in the early morning doing worship and meditation, or limiting the time we waste in reading newspapers and watching TV, or fasting occasionally and observing silence, all this can be called austerity. There are three types of austerity according to the Bhagavad Gita. Swami Prabhavananda summarized them in this way. So we're going to go through the particulars here that the the Gita lays out, Swami Prabhavananda has taught. Number one, the worship of higher powers, service to the teacher and to the wise, cleanliness, external and internal, straightforwardness, continence, and care not to injure any being. These things are known as austerity of the body. So to back away from the body, you you cage it and you control it and you give it its definition and its boundaries. You use it to worship a higher power or your higher ideal if you're more comfortable with that, you know, God this day, these days gets kind of a bad rap. So if you're not comfortable with the idea of God, then take it, God is really, according to Vivekananda even, God is our own highest ideal, the highest thing we can think of in any, in any regard, highest in power, highest in knowledge, highest in love, highest in mercy, highest in grace, all of these things, you know, omniscient, omnipotent, these, these are our ideas, and we can't know any of them through the senses, and as long as we're identified with the senses, we can only think big. You know, you think of, you think of eternal, you think of infinite, you think of the ocean, you think of the sky, neither of which are infinite, you know, but they're really big, because that's the best we can do. So it's the worship of that highest ideal, keeping your, your life in clear view of what your ideal is. You know, is pure love your ideal? Do you buy the notion that many of the world scriptures say that God is love? God is pure love. And what do you know of love? Love is as hard to define as as infinity. Actually, <laughs> you know, it's like if you want, if you can define love, you can define God. And you're not you can't define God because He has no boundary. You know, He He can't fit within any description. He'll always put his toe across the line just to show you. Nope, I can do that too. Tink. <laughs> So, you've got that. So, have this highest ideal and keep it in sight all the time. And do accordingly. Live accordingly. Don't injure people. Tell the truth. Be straightforward about what and who you are. Be clean. Show some discipline in the way that you live your life. You know, these things are your austerity of the body. So, keeping your ideal there. Speech, which causes no vexation, which is true and also agreeable and beneficial and regular study of the scriptures, these are said to constitute the austerity of speech. So speaking again from your heart, from a heart of love, not a heart that's mixed in with a limited mind and limited body that's infected with ego, so where your speech becomes something that breaks someone down or that makes someone feel bad or makes you right, makes you big, you know, but speaking from a place that that, that gives strength, Create strength in the people around you, choosing carefully what you mention to them and how you mention it to them. That old adage that I heard from a a, a, a preacher when I was a young boy, I like fourteen, Neil Gallagher was his name, and he told me one time you know because uh, I had been put in charge of a bunch of kids in the youth group, and uh, i didn 't do it with a great deal of finesse, and I caused a little bit of <laughs> a little bit of a problem. And he kind of used it as an opportunity to teach me. He says, you can never correct somebody more than they believe you love them. That's the austerity of speech. That's the austerity of speech. That you talk from a place of love. And that everybody walks away from your time with you thinking that you love them. That you care about them. That you're there for their good and their well-being. That's the austerity of speech. Number three, the serenity of mind. Kindliness, silence, self-control, honesty of motive. This is called austerity of the mind. And this is the reason for your meditation and for your, that period of practice when you sit and be still and just keep the thought of God in your mind, keep the thought of your highest ideal in mind. Because that will give you your self-control. That will give, your, give you your honesty of motive. Why am I doing this? Which is something to be very careful about in spiritual life. The whys of what you do are very important and very elusive. Your mind will lie any way possible to you to get you that one more piece of cake. <laughs> it will make you swear it's the last time you're ever going to do it. It will tell you that one more isn't going to matter. You've been so good all week long. You know Your mind will come up with any way possible for you to compromise. And so without that regular practice of keeping your ideals and your eyes on your ideal, in your mind and in your heart, only then can you know who you are, can you know what you are, can you believe what you are, can you be true to what you are. That's the austerity of mind. So those are the three categories of austerity. Now Swamiji, Swami Vivekananda, whose picture is pretty much everywhere in this building, uh, including over there on the left, uh, Swami uh, Ramakrishna, he comes up, as he always does, with a great underlying substrate, as it were. This is, this is, instead of having to know three things with subcategories in each of those three things, he's going to tell us what real austerity is. He says, Swami Vivekananda added that one point needs to be emphasized here. We should never forget that the ideal of life is neither austerity nor renunciation nor even meditation, but to know God, to be illumined with one's own soul, this means must never be confused with the end. He goes on to say, true, true, the power comes from austerities, but again, working for the sake of others itself constitutes tapasya or the practice of austerity. Swami, in anger, talking to some of the monks who had, were working there, if you think any work is difficult, then do not come here. Through the grace of God, all paths become easy. Your work is to serve the poor, to serve the miserable, without any distinction of caste or color, and you have no need to think about the results. Your duty is to go on working, and then everything will follow of itself. My method of work is to construct and to not pull down. Read the history of the world, and you will find that the great soul stood as the central figure in a certain period or country, animated by his ideas— Hundreds of people did good to the world. You are intelligent boys and girls and have been coming here for a long time. Say, what have you done? Couldn't you give one life for the service of others? In your next life, you can read the Vedanta and other philosophies. But give this life for the service of others. Then I shall know that your coming here was not in vain. Saying these words, Swamiji sat silent, wrapped in deep thought. And after some time, he added, after so much austerity, I have understood this as the real truth, that God is present in every soul. There is no other God besides that. He who serves the soul serves God indeed. After some pause, Swamiji, addressing the disciple, said, What I have told you today, inscribe in your heart, and see that you do not forget it. Your austerity. The highest austerity, the best practice of austerity, is your service of others. You're taking care of the people who hurt around you. You're reaching out to the people who aren't strong around you. You providing an ear to the people who are crying around you. That's austerity. And that, that's the most challenging part because it's so easy to be religious. It's so easy to get yourself into a steady flow of just being comfortable in life and to forget <laughs> the rest of the world, to forget the suffering around or trying to fit it into your schedule. You know, <laughs> I can't do that for you. I'm busy. I can't call that person. I'm busy. You know, oh, I don't want to get involved at that level. I'm, I withdraw. We forget Swamiji says, don't forget. If you're going to come here, come here to serve. Come here to care. Come here to give. If that's too difficult for you, don't come here. Don't come here. That's austerity. To be a lover and to be cared, to to care. I'm going to read a verse from the Christian scriptures. I've read it many times before. But if there's one scripture I think... Well, even according to Jesus, even backs it up, so who cares what I think? But if you take this scripture, you will never go wrong. Paul is writing, and he says, If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but I don't have love, I'm only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy, and I can fathom all the mysteries and all the knowledge of this world and beyond, and if I have faith that can move mountains, but don't have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardships that I may boast, but I do not have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices in the truth. It always protects. It always trusts. It always hopes. It always perseveres. Love never fails. But where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, But when completeness comes, what is in part disappears. When I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put away the ways of childhood behind me. For now we see only a reflection as in a mirror, but then we will see face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will fully know, even as I am fully known." So this, if you want to know what austerity is, it is to live according to that scripture right there. To put your name in the place of every eye in there. I am patient. I am kind. I do not envy. I do not boast. I am not proud. I do not dishonor others. I am not self-seeking. I am not easily angered. I keep no record of wrongs. I do not delight in evil, but I rejoice in truth. I always protect, I always trust, I always hope, and I always persevere. I never fail. That's austerity. That's what's necessary for you to practice, for you to evaporate this cloud layer of ignorance, this maya, for you to be able to begin to see that you have never seen anything but God, to understand that you have never been anything but God, that you are that love absolute, ever free, and ever pure. The master puts it in further practice. He says, of that, of these practices, what is most important? He says, what need of the sandhya has a man who thinks of God day and night? What need of these, these rituals and these practices? What need of rituals has a man? What need of any devotions anymore if he repeats mother's name at the, th- at the three holy hours? Rituals may pursue him close, but never can they overtake him. Charity, vows, and giving of gifts do not appeal to the Maidan's mind. The blissful mother's lotus feet are his whole prayer and his sacrifice. There is a sadhu in Rishikesh, he says, who gets up early in the morning and stands near a great waterfall. He looks looks at that waterfall the whole day and says to God, Ah, you've done so well. Well done. How amazing. He doesn't practice any other form of japa or austerity. At night, he returns to his hut. So he says to, have, to, to keep in mind this, your highest ideal, to keep in mind constantly the thought of God, the thought of mother, the thought of father, the divine principle, and to live accordingly. That's the most important thing of all of this. That, that, that will help you to escape your pitfalls he has this scenario here where he's talking with a with a devotee, Goswami, and he's he's been telling them that austerity is necessary, that spiritual practice is necessary in order to purify the mind and to purify the heart, and to to give you a sense of empathy and care about the world around you. And this this uh, fellow in the audience, uh, listening to it, he says, "Well, what about this guy Ajamila? Apparently, somebody who just repeated God's name at the time of death and was saved. You know, saved in the sense of." had his realization at that point. He didn't do anything. And the master says, well, you know, that may be true. It may be, it may be things in his past life. He says, that can be there. But he says, you, he, he says, oh, I guess I'm going to have to read it. It also said that he once practiced austerity. So the master's saying, no, the scriptures say that this guy, Ajamila did in fact practice austerity, did in fact. And besides those were his last moments of life. What is the use of giving an elephant a bath? It will cover itself with dirt and dust again and become its former self. But if someone removes the dust from its body and gives it a bath just before it enters the stable, then of course that elephant's going to remain clean. So he's saying, yeah, it's true. (laughs) If you could remember at your moment of death to repeat the name of God and to, to think of your true nature, great. Yeah, good. Wash the elephant and send him into the stall. But it's a gamble because you're going to think about your last moment of life is going to be spent thinking about what you spent your life on. And if you didn't spend your life on reaching your highest ideal of perfecting your ability to see and understand love, love's not going to be your last thought. You know The things that you that you were attached to through your senses that you believed yourself to be will be your last thought, will be the things that you go for. So it's a dangerous gamble, he says. He says, therefore I say, chant the name of God, and with it pray to Him that you may have love. Pray to God that your attachment to such transitory things as wealth, name, and fame, creature comforts, may become less and less every day. With sincerity and earnestness, one can realize God through all religions. The Vaishnavas will realize God, the Shaktas, the Vedantists, the Brahmos, the, 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 the Muslims, the Christians, they will all realize Him too. All will certainly realize God if they are sincere and earnest. He's got someone there listening, and it's the captain. The captain was highly pleased. He says, You alone have the right perception. All men are really Rama, being parts of Rama. All women are really Sita, being parts of Sita. So he's saying, Yeah, you're right, Thakur. You're right, Ramakrishna. God is everyone, God is everywhere. And immediately after saying this, he began to criticize the young devotees. He said, They study English books and don't discriminate about their food. It is not good that they should visit you frequently. You may do you harm. Hazra is a real man, a grand fellow. Don't allow those young people to visit you so much. At first I said, What can I do if they come? Then I gave him some mortal blows. His daughter laughed. I said to him, God is far away from the worldly minded, but God is very near the man, nay, within a distance of three cubits, whose mind is free from worldliness. Speaking of Rakal, the captain said he eats with all sorts of people. Perhaps he had heard it from Hazra. Thereupon I said to him, A man may practice intense austerity and joppa, but he won't achieve anything if his mind dwells on the world. But blessed is the man who keeps his mind on God even though he eats pork. He will certainly realize God in due time. Hazra, with all of his austerity and joppa, doesn't allow an opportunity to slip for earning money as a broker." Yes, yes, said the captain, you are right. But I said to him further, a few minutes ago you said that all men were Brahma and that all women were Sita, and now you are talking like this. He's warning us about a consistency of being, not to be hypocrites, and to be careful about the way that you live. It's one thing to say, oh yes, I believe that all people are God. It's another thing then to turn around and begin begin criticizing each other. It's another thing then to turn around and start finding faults with each other. Because if, in fact, you think everybody is God, then where are the faults and where is the criticism? There's only love divine there. That is what God sees. There are many scriptures like the Vedas, but one cannot realize God without austerity and spiritual discipline. God cannot be found in the six systems, the Vedas or the Tantra, But one should learn the contents of the scripture and then act according to their injunctions. The scriptures are like a grocery list, Ramakrishna says. They're not the point. Philosophy is like a grocery list. It's not the point. You can go and jump as far and as deep into it as you want because they're trying to describe infinite things. So they are infinite containers, seemingly infinite containers. And it's very satisfying to the mind to jump in. That's fine as long as your life reflects what you learn. If you learn that God is one, then you live like God is one. If you learn that God is love, then you live like God is love. If you learn that you are created in the image of God, then you live like somebody who is created in the image of God. You speak of higher things. Your list of being is that scripture that we read from Corinthians earlier, that you're kind, you're caring, that you always hope, you always give strength. Love builds up, knowledge puffs up. That's another scripture from Corinthians. So you've got to be careful. It's good to know the scriptures, only to the extent they act that they actuate what you are, that you live what you learn. Knowing about them, there's nothing there for you. You will not find your freedom in knowledge of that type. You won't find your freedom in philosophy. Ramakrishna ends by by singing a song. He says, I have surrendered my soul at the fearless feet of the mother. Am I afraid of death anymore? Unto the tuft of hair on my head is tied the almighty mantra, Mother Kali's name. My body I have sold in the marketplace of the world, and with it I have bought Sri Durga's name. Deep within my heart I have planted the name of Kali, that wish-fulfilling tree of heaven. When Yama, the king of death, appears, to him I shall open my heart and show it growing there. I have cast out for me the 6 unflagging foes, the six passions. Ready am I to sail life's sea, crying to Durga victory. Again he sang, dwell, O mind, within yourself. Enter no other's home. If you but seek there, you will find all you are searching for. And again, though I am never loath to grant salvation, God says, I hesitate indeed to grant pure love. Whoever wins pure love surpasses all. He is adored by men. He triumphs over the three worlds. So the bottom line is that surrender, laying at mother's feet, taking her name into your heart and letting that highest ideal that you envision when you call her name radiate purely and freely through you. That's austerity, to remove the things from your life that block that vision, that block that infinite, to remove that refraction of the mind that sees yourself as needy and small and limited, that has to defend itself, that has to, that has to exert itself, that has to dominate others, that has to climb a ladder, has to earn more, taste more, see more, have more, to, to put away from that, to get it out of your life, to do it as a practice means to take that thing which 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 causes you the most suffering. Take, take something like getting up in the morning. If getting up in the morning is difficult for you, create, a, create an austerity quote out of it. Say, for the next three weeks, I'm getting up at four o'clock no matter what for no reason. I'm just going to get up at four. That's a practice of austerity. And what does that do? It drags your weakness into into the light it makes you aware of all the things around it you can watch the arguments that go through your mind every morning as it tries to to convince you to lay in for just one more snooze one more alarm you know you can listen to your mind as it looks at the fruit and says oh it's appealing to the senses how warm these covers are how comfortable this pillow is how nice to roll over and feel that You do it, you bring it into the light, you make it as a practice so that you can watch those things, you can see the deceptions of the mind, you can see the attachments of your mind and become aware of them. So you practice that austerity. That's how you make a practice of austerity. Drag a weakness of yours into the light. Swami Prabhupada always said, and I always mention it again and again, that he said anything in Maya, anything in this world that you put into the light of awareness the knots will come untied. So that's your practice of austerity. Find the things that you're attached to. Make a practice of cutting them off and doing without them. Put that awareness on them and watch your mind react. Watch, your, watch watch. what goes on in there. That way, you can become aware of your motives. You can become aware of your blockages, the things that are not letting you see God everywhere all the time, to enjoy the bliss that the great sages joy enjoyed. You know, Takur, every page of the gospel, he's going into samadhi, going into that state of bliss constantly. You know, I remember when I first read that book, I thought it was a matter of minutes before it was my turn <laughs> seventeen years ago. It's like Life is hard, practice hard. Rise up to the challenge. Let us take austerity and live for others as the definition of who we are. Let us be true to our nature be honest in our nature hafiz my ending hafiz poem venus just asked me perhaps for just one minute out of the day it may be of value to torture yourself with thoughts like i should be doing a hell of a lot more with my life than i am because i'm so damn talented but remember for just one minute out of the day With all the rest of your time, it would be best to try looking upon yourself more as God does, for he knows your royal nature. God is never confused and can see only himself in you. My dear, Venus just leaned down and asked me to tell you a secret, to confess that she's just a mirror who has been stealing your light and your music for centuries. She knows, as does Hafiz, that you are the sole heir to the king. Let's take just a few minutes to reflect on these things. things going on this week here at the center. The, one of the first things coming up is our Labor Day weekend retreat from September 3rd till September 4th. Saturday, September 3rd is Sunday. Yeah, one night. Uh, so uh, we've got a retreat center that we're going to. The